I hope you've got your ice cream. Man, I would have gotten here earlier. I was in my office praying and fasting, and if I'd known that the hell was here, I would have, I would have come here a lot earlier. Um, I don't know if you guys can do anything about the, like, the, the echo of me being up this high, but if you can do something, that'd be great, sound-wise, I mean. Hey, um, I just want to, I want to remind you tonight that there was, this, there was this moment where Jesus was teaching about wealth, and this rich guy came to Jesus, and he said that he had obeyed all the commands since he was a young man, and um, Jesus said, okay, well then, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy went away really sad, and Jesus said, you know, it's, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And to which Peter then was like, well, gosh, that's crazy, right? Um, but then he said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you, right? And it, it got to something that's pretty important because... Is there such a thing, are you allowed to care about what happens to you if you're a believer? Do you know what I mean? Like does, if perfect love drives out all fear, is one of the fears that drives out the, the, the hope that something good will happen to us and that we fear maybe that won't happen? Like is it okay to want something like heaven or for the things that you give up in the service of others to return to you some way through a gift, right? Through the generosity of God. Some of you may remember, I went back and started listening to some of my sermons while I was doing this project at my house, and I started with the oldest one. So I went back to 2010. And, um, yeah, I haven't gotten any better. It's, that's, it's kind of depressing. Um, but uh, one, of the, one of the stories I told in, uh, in a number of the sermons, I said, I said I would tell it a bunch of times, but I don't think I told it again, was there was this farmer he lived in this kingdom, and he, he, uh, he grew, of all things, like this maximally beautiful carrot. Just like this, just the perfect carrot. He's like, he pulls it out of the ground, he's like, this is perfect. This is the perfect carrot. So he actually appeals to have an audience with the king himself, and gets in, and brings the king this carrot. And the king's kind of like, hey, <laughs> you know? And the guy's like, listen, I know this is weird, but you really are a great king. And all the carrots, all the stuff I've ever grown, this is the most perfect carrot I've ever grown. And I wanted to bring it to you and just give it to you. And so he gives the carrot to the king and the king takes it and he's like, he's like really tough. He's like, this is a really, this is a really great gift. You know, in fact, I'm actually looking right now for a farmer to be in charge of and a steward of a bunch of my farmland. And I want you to do it. Would you take that role? And the, the farmer's like, well, well, yeah, that'd be, I would love to do that for you. And he's like, well, that's your new job. So make get him a new hat, you know? And, but when he's sitting there, one of the barons is in the side of the room. And he says, if you can get that for a carrot, you know? And so he goes back to his stables and he gets this horse that he had had bred for himself. It's like the crowning achievement of 15 years of his stables breeding. And it's like the perfect horse. And it had already been trained and broken for him because he was going to ride it everywhere as like, to show how awesome he was. And so he decides, he gets the audience with the king, and he brings it into the king's chambers, and he says, Lord King, he said, um, you know, of all my life I've spent with all of my lands breeding horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred, and it's probably the greatest horse I ever will breed. And you are a great king. And I want to give you this horse as a gift, because of how great you are, and it's a pleasure for me to give it to you. 
And the king says, thank you so much. And he, he ushers to receive it, and he dismisses the, the baron. And the baron's like walking away, kind of, you know, dejected and a little like, what's going on? And he, the king sees it, and he sees it, and he says, he says Baron, uh, do you want me to explain? And he, the guy goes, well, what do you mean? Right? And he said, do you want me to explain why I, I made the man who gave me the carrot in charge of my, my royal fields, and I'm, I didn't say anything to you? And he said, I, I suppose, king, if you wish to explain it, right? Still saving face. And he said, here's the difference. The farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. Right? When we, whenever we give to God because we want to give to God, not really because of what we're going to get back or what it's going to do, we do it because it's right, we do it because it's beautiful, we do it because it's our purpose, we do it because of what other people need, we do it because it's loving, we do it because it's like Jesus, we do it for all the reasons of salvation, right? God has always said that it will do two things. One is that he will be glad to reward every one of those acts done righteously forever. And he says at one point that even a cup of cold water given in his name can never lose its reward, right? He says to Peter, when Peter asks that question, he says, listen, Nobody that does anything like this for me is going to fail to receive back a hundred times in this life, brothers, sisters, and in the age to come, eternal life. Right? It's, it's important to recognize that um, Jesus never thought there was anything wrong with hoping and even trusting in his promise that when we do what he wants because of him for the right reasons, that he, no one will ever doubt the expression of his appreciation for what you've done, right? If you, if you behave religiously in a kind of service where you're trying to just give yourself the gift, it doesn't really work, you know? But when you give to God because you want to give to God because he's asked you to, because of what he's called us to, because of what he's made us for, then he makes sure in every place where he refers to it in scripture that we can never outgive him, that the share he's going to give us is packed down, shaken together, so he can fit the most possible blessing he possibly can get, he can get in there. I want you to know that like a lot of you are here because you volunteer, you serve other people, you make real sacrifices. And I'm going to talk about in just a minute about the real sacrifices of hospitality. But I, I want to like, express clearly and tell you, as straightforwardly as I can, there, nothing and no one can take away the reward God will give you because he wants to. I mean, just think about somebody did something that you actually appreciated. They did for the right reason because they cared and the appreciation that you felt and what you wanted to do for them. And God, right, and we're not very good people. Like, anything that we've done for God, you have not yet experienced in your mind the first waking dream of what the appreciation of God looks like to those who love him. And I want you to remember that every time you open your home, every time you volunteer to be hospitable, every time you don't go talk to your friend after a service, but you go talk to somebody that you haven't met before, every time you talk to somebody that clearly nobody wants to talk to because they're difficult to be around, the next time you talk with somebody who showed up, who their BO is just about unbearable to your normal sense of smell, and you do everything you can to not show that you know it's there, and you talk to that person like they're a divine image bearer, 
and you talk about what they're interested in and you try to make them feel good, right? There is nothing that takes away the reward of that. The generosity of God towards the people who are generous towards him because of love, who have actually learned the lesson of grace, will be the recipient of grace. As you judge, so you will be judged. Right? That's me trying to be touchy-feely encouraging. I hope that works for some of you. Uh, we'll have Mike do it next time. Um, one of the things that has always um, frustrated me about churches trying to grow and reach new people is that churches that are trying to be godly in doing so can, in trying to do really cool stuff, kind of get gimmicky. And not only is that not godly, but it also is kind of repellent. Like the thing that's almost attractive becomes repellent. It's kind of like wearing a little too much cologne. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, that would have been nice, but now it's not nice, you know? And so three of the values that I think are deeply embodied in churches that are godly but not gimmicky, i.e. a church that we're trying to be like, hopefully, right, are these three. And I'm not going to talk about them all. I'm going to just talk about the first mainly tonight, though they're all kind of intertwined. The, the first is hospitality, right, that we are welcoming even if it costs us. Right? We look at another person and we act like they are a pleasure and a treasure to us. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but both of those concepts are important. That that person is really highly valuable, but you can act like somebody like you value somebody, but that it isn't a pleasure to be around them. Right? There's a few people that I relate to, they may or may not go to this church, that I struggle with when they come and talk to me. Okay? It's not you, probably. You know? <laughs> And it's not hard for me to behave as though they're important, that they're God's treasure. That's not really hard for me to do. But for me to behave as though it's a pleasure for me to relate to them is hard for me. So that they think I'm having a good time being with them. But that makes all the difference. Um, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've seen this counselor a couple of times that I'm supposed to be working with that the elders are moderately overseeing. And one of the things I had to do was I had to write a letter to my dad about what it was like to be his son. And I had a really good dad, fundamentals-wise, right? Like, he was a baseball player. He got a lot of hits. You know what I mean? But there's, you know, I had some issues I was relating to, and so part of being honest with that was I wrote, I wrote this letter, and the, the biggest thing that I kept coming back to was I was like, you know what? The biggest thing, you did everything for me. Here's the thing. It was tough feeling like I was an embarrassment to you. It was tough feeling like it was really hard for you to take pleasure in me, right? And the same thing that can wound a child, even when we're not even trying to, is the same thing that wounds everybody. I mean, think about this. Why do we worship God? Is it because he's small-minded and insecure? Or is it because healthy, emotional persons enjoy being rightly delighted in? And in fact, all human persons long to be delighted in. And hospitality in some ways is to take a person who is a wanderer, a foreigner, somebody who is not within the knitted community of mutual cultural delight and belonging and make them feel treasured and delighted in. Right? The second thing is community or solidarity. That is, we are irrevocably in this together. I'll be here for you and I know you're going to be here for me. Now you might, when I, when we put, one of the reasons why I hate 
the way churches describe what we do now. Like, from going from the word fellowship to community, I always hated that. Well, partly because I like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and I know what J.R.R. Tolkien meant by fellowship. He meant solidarity. He meant, you and I will never part until this task is done together and we are friends to the end. So much so that an elf and a dwarf, after the task was over, traveled the world together because they become such fast friends in the fellowship. Even though they couldn't have been more different, there couldn't have been more racial hatred between them for good reason, right? But they had learned fellowship, right? Community just doesn't ring to that. And we need to understand what we mean by community. Otherwise, it's like a business-sized word that has no business in the church, right? What we believe in is fellowship and solidarity. And if it's businessy, sexy for you to call a community, then so be it. Might as well call yourself a Christ follower too, you know? And uh, whatever, it's fine. But just you better know what these words mean, you know? Okay, third is sacrifice. That this is the currency of loyalty and the cost of influence. The most inspirational act is the one that no one is willing to do, but that the heart knows is noble. I don't know about you, but there's lots of reasons people cry at movies. There's really only one reason I cry at movies, other than puppies. They just get me every time. But the, the things, that's not true. Um, the things that, um, the thing that is when I watch a film and somebody does something that is personally sacrificial that nobody really does in the real world, you know what I mean? That gets me. I like, I'm in tears. Sometimes it's like, it's like getting over their emotional inhibitions and like actually telling a person that they love them. I was watching The Adam Project with my kids the other day, that film on Netflix. I think I cried like three times during that stupid movie. You know? But there's a point where the dad just tells his kids, boys, he loves them. And it's really, it's hard to do. I know, I'm a parent, and it's like, it's hard to like get over those inhibitions. Or like sometimes it's sacrifices, or sometimes it's like accepting people that normally you would just put off a little bit. But there's something about like doing something that nobody else does. It's one of the reasons why our, our church, under my leadership, we give financial gifts in like sort of weird ways to weird, strange people at interesting times. I want to give financial gifts to people when they least expect to be given gifts, right? So like, it's the church that nobody pays any attention to that only has 45 people, or that like, it's a bunch of immigrants in this building in the back lot of the thing, and nobody knows they even exist. And they're not fashionable, and they're not known at the university. And we give them $40,000 to rebuild their sanctuary, right? I want to give them the carrot. Does that make sense? Sacrifice, like doing it in the right way, I think it can make a big difference. And I've tried to do it in such a way that it's not gimmicky, so that it feels godly to the people who really receive it. Does that make sense? And sometimes it feels weird, but like, you know, we just preach through Ezekiel, so. All right, so I wanna give you a second at your table to discuss this, okay? So um, Danny Meyer, who's a hospitality expert, he does like um, restaurants and stuff. He said, somebody wrote a two-star review of one of his restaurants. And he said this, although the dining room is flooded with those seeming, smiling serving, Right, servers, their dance is less a ballet than a military drill, glaringly mechanized. Okay, I want you to take a minute at your small groups and think about your family context or your apartment with your like the people you live with, whatever, whatever your home context is, your small group context if you have one, and your volunteer context if you have one. What would be the difference between the expression of an organic ballet of hospitality and a glaringly mechanized or gimmicky hospitality. Take four or five minutes and see if you can sort out what you, the difference would be for you. Go.
Okay. Last sentence. All right. What's something you came up with that's like a gimmicky thing? Raise a, just raise your hand before you yell it out so I know which way to look is all. Something that's like, a, will it be like, this would be gimmicky, this would be like mechanized in a not good way. Yeah. Oh, say it louder. Forcing people, to shake Forcing people to shake hands, especially in the service. You like that one? Okay, yeah. David. Okay, so if you give people the chance to stay, yeah. that's bad. No, that's good. Oh, that's good. That'd be like a, that'd be a good or yeah, okay. All right, you were losing me a little. I like that. Okay, good. Over here, there's one. Yeah, Chad. Um, instead of worrying about like worrying about what your house or the, the settings look like versus and spending time worrying about that versus um, paying attention to people in the conversation. Okay, can I rephrase that to paying attention to how things look to the detriment of paying attention to the people? Yeah. Great, great. Anybody else? Yes? How about uh, being friendly to someone once and then never again? Okay, <laughs> being friendly to somebody one time and never again. Good. Yeah. Okay, one of the things I find myself doing, I don't know if you do this, um, I'll look at somebody and smile, and then almost subconsciously my eyes will bounce away from them immediately for no further human contact. Do you guys ever find yourself doing that? Like, oh, I'm walking by this person, I should kind of say hi, and then my eyes just go like this, like, and we're done, you know? If I do that to you, I'm really sorry. It's just, it's almost, okay. Any other ones? All right, any, like, any positive examples of, like, this isn't gimmicky, this is, like, good? Did you come up with any of those? You guys had, like, five minutes. There's a lot of smart people in here. Everybody's like, it's a stupid handshaking. People make you shake hands. I can't, you all have the same stuff, probably. Yeah, Femi. Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is pot good. Like, like, when they say, it's my pleasure, you, like, believe them. Half the time. You're like, I know you have to say that, but it really sounded like you meant it. Yeah, good. Anybody else? I got one. Yep. The members of this church are sincerely friendly and welcoming in the congregation on Sunday with somebody they've never even met before. Yeah, so you're saying in practice, like people here do it. They do it. Great, great. Yeah, I think we have a really good, I mean, in every church it's a percentage, right? And so, that we, I mean, it's never going to be everybody, and it's almost never nobody. But you, you want to get the percentage as high as you can, you know, and hope that new people are going to bump into one of those people, you know. All right, we better keep moving because I'm not managing my time very well. All right, I want to go through a couple things really quickly. Um, one is I want to talk a little bit about the theology of hospitality. This is going to be real quick, okay? I really want to encourage you, uh, if you want to have some fun, uh, I don't, I, that's not a real good description, but go back to 2010, the earliest podcast we have available on the podcast. Two of the first ones are about what an elder is supposed to be. And this Sunday, you're going to vote on elders. And Bill Lurches, the guy who came, was before me, the interim pastor, his last, one, two of his last sermons are on what is an elder supposed to be out of, a fee, out of um, 1 Timothy 3. Really good sermons. I speed them up to almost 2.0 speed, but, like, but really good content, okay? And then, there's, and, then, and then there's some other good early sermons there you might like, okay? Um, but one of my early sermons, I don't remember which number it was, uh, I did a couple of sermons on hospitality. And so there's, whole, there's two sermon-length sermons on hospitality. They're all theology, all New Testament. I was really convicted by them um, when I listened to them while I was trying to build my bathroom. And so, anyway. Um, Hospitality literally means loving the stranger or the foreigner. 
Uh, the Greek word in the New Testament is literally those two words together, right? It means it's love and stranger or foreigner. Because, you know, if, did anybody see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Right? When she dates the guy who's not Greek, he's, the dad says, he, he goes, Xenos! Xenos! Meaning like foreigner, right? How's this foreigner dating my daughter? This is crazy, right? Xenos, right? That's what it means, foreigner or, or sojourner. Um, and so what, what, when you, in the New Testament, the Greek word normally used for hospitality is philo xenos. Philo, love of xenos, foreigner, right? Does that make sense? That's what it means. I mean, it doesn't always work to just like break apart the words, put in a word for what, it, what its definition is, but it pretty much works in this case, right? Because if you look at the commands in Leviticus to God's people, it literally means that. It means you should treat foreigners like neighbors. When foreigners come into the people of God and they live under the law, you, you need to give them a place to live, meaning you're supposed to give them land. And the question's like, well, whose land? Because the land is already owned. <laughs> like, it literally means, like, of the landowners, they've got to sort out how much of their land they're going to give to this new foreigner that <laughs> just moved in. Like, have you ever heard a sermon on that? That's weird. But it's, like, literally commanded in the Torah that it has to be done. Because you have to give a, place, a person a place to live, Right? Anyway, let's move on. If you look at the Bible, Christian maturity, it's assumed anybody who walks in any kind of Christian maturity walks in hospitality. So there are places where it's just like pretty straightforward. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because apparently, we're not the first people to complain about this. You know? But then as you get into the, the, um, some of the other ones, there's, so the first two are just general for all Christians. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, right? And the assumption there for hospitality is not you're having game night with other singles. That is hospitality, and it is meaningful. But hospitality in the context of the Bible usually means show, welcoming someone who has no place to go. Right? It's like it's, in, it's improving the experience that they're going to have and their, their amount of belonging, at least momentarily, because you include them in whatever you have socially. Does that make sense? So, and the, but then you look, see, in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, all of these are in reference to offices of leadership in the church. The first two of elders. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and so on. Do you see? Um, and then in uh, Titus 1.8 it says, Rather he, that is an elder, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Do you see that in both lists that the Apostle Paul writes for what an elder should be, hospitable is explicitly placed. You can't have an elder. If you think we have an elder candidate and you think that that, can, that elder candidate is an inhospitable person, it doesn't matter how good they are at theology. It doesn't matter how good you think they'll be at church discipline. It doesn't matter how good they sing or preach. They are unqualified to be an elder because an elder is by definition an exemplary Christian. A Christian you can look to and say, I should imitate that person right, in terms of their character. And you can't have a Christian character worth imitating that isn't hospitable. Does that make sense? And then the last is from a specific passage in 1 Timothy about widows. And there's some, um, some controversy about exactly what this is in reference to, whether it's just generally widows in the church or it's a particular list of widows, of widows who are maintained by the church financially and who serve the church and Christians as best they can with whatever ability they have physically, because these are women who are all, one of the characteristics is they have to be over 60 years old, right? And it's, but it says of this, who, who can be in this list of widows or in this group of widows? And it says, they have to be well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, 
helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. One of the good deeds that he explicitly mentions is showing hospitality. It's fundamental to Christian life and faith. This is really important because we're beginning increasingly to live in a world that is monopolized by privacy, right? We have a right to privacy. Did you know that? A right to privacy. Now, it was originally just unreasonable searches and seizures. The, the king couldn't come to your house and just take everything because he felt like it. Your home was your castle, just like his castle was his castle, right? But it's been broadened out, and now it's a cultural meme, right? It's not just... Um, it's not just like this thing that we talk about a lot. It's like we all have kind of this right to privacy, a right to be left alone, right? I have a no soliciting sign on my door because I got sick of people coming and trying to get me to sign stuff while I was eating dinner. I want them to go away, right? And like I think on one level, that's okay. I know people who talk to those people. And I, don't, I hope they're not more godly than me, right? But, but on some level, like in, in, the, in the earliest parts of the Old Testament, it's very clear that somebody who you have, like, do not know from Adam can show up at your house, right? And you put the spread before them. And you send them on their way, fed and watered and slept and cared for and welcomed. Even if you don't know them, even if you don't like them, you know? That's just part of a de decent human being. Until quite recently, and in many places in the world now, you don't have to be a Christian for it to be a fundamental cultural value to welcome the stranger, to be hospitable to people you've never met, to show people care just because they have bumped into you, right? And, but in, in the United States, it's not. And the more urban we live, and the more electric things we have, the less it seems to be the case, and it's something we have to sort of relearn. And sometimes people don't really learn it until they travel internationally. They'll read it in the Bible, and they'll go, oh, yeah, I guess we should be hospital. Maybe on, maybe two Sundays a year, we should invite people over for lunch. And then they go on a mission trip to India or Ecuador or something like that, and they see somebody who literally the ground of their home is dirt, who spent um, some of the only money that they have to buy a two-liter bottle of Pepsi, because to them that's a delicacy they can ill afford for themselves, to offer it to you like we would buy like a really nice red wine for good friends so that they can give you like a little cup of Coke, right? Because they wanna show you how important it is you've come to visit them and how much they wanna welcome you, right? I was in a, the red light district in Mumbai several years ago and I went to a small brothel with only HIV positive women who were in a AIDS study. Um, about half of them were Christian believers. And um, I sat down and they like, they had tea, right? I mean, these women had nothing. And I, I mean, I felt terrible drinking their tea and eating their crackers and stuff. But the, the fuss about me just visiting them and them welcoming me and us praying together and them praying for me and my ministry, my church, my children, it was really, really, really touching, right? And yet, it, yet it's really easy to complain when we're kind of like, somebody puts us up to be hospitable, you know what I mean? It's an attitude thing. It's, a, it's about us having control of our own time, you know? Anyway, let's keep, I need to keep moving. Okay, where are we? Christian maturity. Okay, um, in Romans 12, this is a really interesting passage. Romans 12 is a really, really comprehensive passage on Christian living. If you just, like, memorized Romans 12 and lived that out, you probably wouldn't have to have the rest of the Bible and you'd do okay. It's one of the things that we evangelicals, we study the Bible, right? But, like, you know, you get one of these summary passages and you believed it, 
You really believed it. If you had like Romans, I, I see your, I, Devin's not even right. You have Romans maybe 3 through or 2, 1 through 12, and you're in really good shape. You know what I'm saying? If you just believed it. In this one, it says, at the very end of it, it says, Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there is an interpretation of this passage that says, heaping burning coals on his head means giving them fire from your hearth so they can put it in a clay pot, which they would carry on their head to their home, receiving your gift. I find that to be a most unpersuasive interpretation of this passage. Okay, now, now, it's not crazy because the Old Testament quotation is from a proverb, and the proverb doesn't have any more context than that. So it's really hard to prove absolutely that this is the case. I do not think that's what it means. I think what it means is this. One is that hospitality in this context of this verse is the opposite function is vengeance, right? He says, don't take vengeance. Instead, do the opposite. Do the good. You show hospitality to your enemy, right? Secondly, it's the inherent good offered to anyone, right? It is always good to offer somebody hospitality because, listen, if the person's your enemy and they deserve God's vengeance, that's the assumption here, that you're not making up that they're your enemy, they should be your enemy because they really have done something awful, right? And they deserve God's vengeance by not taking vengeance on them. It's so that you can let God judge them because he's gonna, right? And then he says, show them hospitality. Do you know what that tells us? deductively is this. Everyone is a proper recipient of hospitality. Now the only exception I know of to that is in 1 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul says, if somebody claims to be a believer and lives openly in rejection of obedience to Christ, don't even eat with such a man, he says. But he says, I don't mean that about the world. Right? So there's only one exception when our hospitality creates an implicit affirmation of somebody's rejection of Christ while they claim to accept Christ. That in doing so, we affirm their conscience and are complicit in their destruction. And in such a case, we're, that's the only case in the Bible that I know of that affirms the non-showing of hospitality. Here, it says, even your enemy that you think God is going to damn, you should show them hospitality. They are a right object of your hospitality. And then thirdly, it's a damnable grace to reject it. If by showing them hospitality, you're heaping burning coals on their head, the assumption would be this. You show them grace, and they reject that grace. And the rejection of the grace of hospitality is damnable because it is such a grace. It is such a beautiful thing, such an inherently good thing, such a like God thing, that to reject it and to maintain... The action to be somebody's enemy when they open their table to you and they show you hospitality and they welcome you in as a stranger. And if you maintain your status as their enemy, you're doing exactly what it says in John 3, the rejection of the Son of God will create. Right? Remember it says, for God did not, this is after the verse we like, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And it says, God did not send his son into the world to damn the world or to condemn it, but so that through him it might be saved. But then what does it say right after that? Right? It says that if you don't put your faith in God's one and only Son, you stand what? Condemned already because you've rejected God's one and only Son. What does that mean? It's all your sins don't even matter. The rejection of the divine hospitality of the coming of the Son of God for your redemption, your maintenance of your position as the enemy of God, even with the ultimate, complete, total, and gracious offer of the hospitality of God to his own enemies, 
that if you reject that, that act in and of itself is sufficiently damnable because grace should have done something to you. And the fact that it didn't demonstrates the profound evil that you allowed to reside inside of you and the confirmation that you will not repent of it. Hospitality is that big a deal. Interesting. Um, it's also the first principle in the extreme implication, right? I'm not going to go into Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 2, right? It's like the first 10 verses are God's salvation of us, that while we were his enemies, he, Christ died for us. And then what's the implication in the second half of the chapter? Therefore, in Christ, every wall of hostility between people is broken down. So we go from being enemies that want to damn each other to hospitable friends, right? And then in Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about this, and he says, listen, you've heard it say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Like, this is the end of, like, it's not the end of the sermon I'm about, but it's the end of a certain ethical section. And he says, listen, um, if he strikes you on the cheek, turn the other two as well, as if, um, and if someone wants to sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, that's not literally a context of, like, inviting somebody in for hospitality, like, for dinner. But the dynamic of giving freely to somebody who's going to take from you, even not in good faith, is part of being perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Right? If you're hoping that living in the justice of Christ means that you're going to experience fairness, man, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're going to be really unhappy in life the way it is, and you're not going to understand the gospel and the grace of God the way it is, so you'll neither be happy with the way the world is or the way it's going to be, and that's a bad place to be, you know? Now, um, I want to go quickly through, oh gosh, you guys, I have not done good with time management on this. I've tried to be funny too much. Okay, here, um, so there's a couple things. So in one sense, some of our ministries, the places where we give money as a church are forms of really of hospitality, right? Like CareNet is a kind of hospitality, Right? A mother who's pregnant, she doesn't know where to go. Where does she, where does she have to go? There's got to be a place for her to go, right? Now, it, it should, maybe it should be your house, right? But we like to pay for things instead of do them. So, you know, there's CareNet, right? Um, and, and, if, and if the day comes when Roe v. Wade is overturned right now, Wisconsin is an abortion legal state. I don't know if you know that. But if Roe v. Wade does get overturned this summer, Wisconsin is an abortion illegal state. Which could incentivize some women, rather than driving to Illinois, to consider not having an abortion, which could mean CareNet could get overrun, which could mean that we need more guest rooms for women who are pregnant and don't know what they're going to do, which could mean they're coming to your house. Does that make sense? That's called Christianity. Do you understand? So maybe, you know, get a new bedspread, be ready, because that could happen, right? Um, shelter from the Storm is another example of a place that they take in literally homeless mothers, right? There's nothing more hospitable than that. Does that make sense? And, and we don't have to be like, conservative in the bad sense of saying, well, do they deserve it? Remember, even if they're your enemy, a human being is the proper object of hospitality, right? And then Hope in the Future is a good example of this for the elder, frail elderly, ref, our refugee ministry, right? Receiving literally a foreign family and making sure that they're welcomed into this place and they can have a livelihood here, right? These are examples, but it's important that, that every, every one of us as an individual person, though, has a ministry of hospitality too and a calling. Remember, hospitality isn't really a gift. And some people are gifted at hospitality, right? Like evangelism. Some people are gifted at evangelism. But that doesn't mean they're the only people who tell people the good news, right? There's some people who have the gift of helps. They like anticipate people's needs before they even happen, and they're so helpful, and you're like, oh my gosh, how did you even know I needed that? I feel so touched. And there's other people who are like, look, if you, have, if you need somebody to move the chair, I can move the chair. 
right? And that person who, when they're told to do something, they do it, that's still good. That's helpful, you know? And hospitality is like that. Some people are really gifted in, in all of the many different kinds of gifts that go in the house. Some people are good at, let me just go to the cooking part. Some people are the good at like, yeah, I'm not that private part. You know, come on in, come on over, guys. There's all kinds of different ways to be good at hospitality, and many of them look very differently, right? Um, I, I'd love to get, we really should have like somebody come, Esther would be great for this, or the Beresfords, to just talk about in-home hospitality, like just practically like, what kind of food? How do you get them to help in the kitchen? Are they allowed to help in the kitchen? The answer is yes, right? You like try to get everybody involved in everything, right? So like there's a real practical follow-up to this, but I want you to understand that um, people often think I don't have enough time, energy, or finances. Or sometimes people say, you know, Nick, I'm just, I'm just not much of an extrovert. You know, I'm not Mike Beresford, right? But again, this is like, this is like saying that loving others, I'm too introverted to love others, right? It, sorry, okay. Uh, so that's not how it goes. Introverted people sometimes behave differently in how they love others, how they invite people to the circle, how they choose to love people, the way they do it, the ministries they're involved in, how they talk to people. Those are different. Like, my wife likes to focus on one person for a long period of time, listen really deeply to them. She's, she's introverted. That's how she tends to connect with people. She likes groups of less than four people, okay? I'd rather yell at, like, 500, right? Because I'm neither an extrovert nor an introvert. I just don't like anyone, you know? But I want to serve people because Jesus wants me to. And so this is my favorite way to do it, right? So, um, you don't get that. Okay, so I'm not going to, I'm going to skip that. Um, all right. Oh, gosh, I know. That's terrible. All right, I want to go through some, like, practical applications really quick, okay? Before we move on. Um, one is that there are some venues of hospitality in church life that as volunteers, I need you to know about and key in on, right? There's certain, I, we, we talk in fishing about how um, there's fish in lakes, but the fish are only in about 2% of the lake. Do you know that? Fish only in 2% of the lake. So if you're fishing in any of the 98% of the lake, you're wasting your time. You know, it's like people who literally they paddle out to the middle of the lake and they fish, and you're like, you're not going to catch it in the middle of the lake. You know? Hospitality is kind of like that too when you were trying to reach people for Jesus. There are certain moments that are really key moments. So we talk about the golden nine minutes. Some of you, who served the golden nine minutes? Yeah. So like the golden nine minutes is like the nine minutes right after I say amen. Like the, those first, especially the, the, it, it's, there's like the sapphire two minutes. And then the golden nine minutes. The first 30 seconds after the benediction ends are the most critical moments in our church's gathered life. I don't know if you know that. It's the most critical moments. There are people who are literally, am I doing stuff here? I, I did something bad. Sorry. Can you fix that? Um, there are people who are literally in the parking lot 30 seconds after amen is said. They're literally, and, and some of those people the most need to be connected with. Some of them aren't Christians. Uh, the, the number one reason people visit churches now is not because somebody invites them. I guess we've gotten really sucky at inviting people. We should get better at that. That's another talk. But one of the things, one of the reasons is because um, people visiting because of crises has overtaken it. But here's the problem with people visiting churches because of crises. They tend to come between 4 and 16 minutes late, and they tend to leave immediately after the service is over. Okay, so now you know that. When you see somebody come in 4 to 16 minutes late, and gets up like they're going to leave right after the service is over. You run all the way around in front of them, and then you're like just casually going, oh, hey, I don't think I've met you. 
I'm sorry, I'm just a mouth breather. What's your name? You know? Like that, those 30 seconds, then those two minutes, then those about nine minutes, right? We want somebody who visits our church to talk to at least three people who show real interest in them and act like it's a pleasure to talk to them. Do you understand? It doesn't have to be like a big deal. You could ask them like three questions about themselves and be like, hey, it was really great to meet you. And then just like act like the conversation is over and see if they walk away. And then if they don't, keep talking to them. And if you have some place to invite them, invite them. Right? This is also true of um, small groups are obviously key places for hospitality's application. And also large um, church events. Like when we have the barbecue and stuff like that, those are key moments to be looking around. Right? Who, like, who can I invite to sit with me? Who isn't talking to someone? Who's just sitting over there? Like, what, what kid doesn't seem to be having fun? Right? Um, also, just, like, knowing how to introduce yourself to people in ways that aren't a problem. Right? So, for example, if you ask somebody, how long have you been attending, rather than are you new, sometimes that's really helpful. Especially with, like, all the masks people wearing. I have no idea who's been here for, like, you know what I mean? I've been looking at a third of their face for two years. And so you can, it's easy to be like, are you new? They're like, no, I've been here, like, three years. I watched online for a while, now I've come, but I wore masks, does that make sense? So like masks make it totally fine to be like, I have no idea if you've been here for two years, right? Second is make it interesting for them. Um, a lot of people just really like talking about themselves and stuff. So if I, let's say I'm talking to Jenny. I say, hey, I'm Nick, your, your name's Jenny. We were talking a little bit. And then Jenny says something I'm interested in, right? Right, the normal way we express immodesty is I go, oh yeah, I like that. And then I just start talking about that thing you talked about that I'm interested in. That's not hospitality because it's immodesty, right? What I need to do is, is listen to Jenny, uh, figure out what she's interested in, and talk to her about that. Does that make sense? Otherwise, people will get the idea that it's a pleasure for you for them to pay attention to you, rather than it's a pleasure for you to pay attention to them. Do you understand? All right. And so you draw out things that are interesting to them, and um, what do they mention about themselves? Because every time you do this, you're a host. Right? Remember, even our hospitality team, right? You're not, you're not just there to shake hands, right? You're there to be a host. All right, in terms of connections, part of being a host is a good host never leaves anybody unconnected. Like if you have a little party at your house and somebody comes to the door and everybody doesn't already know everybody else, right? You're, you, what you do is you take that person from the door and you don't let go of them until they're connected. So you're like, oh, Sarah, hi, so I'm so glad you come. Hey, do you know Alice? You know, Alice, and Alice is a nurse. I know that you're gonna, you're thinking about going to nursing school. Alice has been a nurse for you. She works at the UW. Do you guys, do you guys like the crumpets? I got these things. They're really, they're like, they're like the crab rangoons. Do you guys, because I think, because Sarah likes, you know, it's like kind of like you make enough connections for people. So at the at Explore this week, there was a guy there named Nick. Is Nick here? Nick, plumber in training. Nick, it's not here. Okay, great. Um, we can talk about him. Great. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, like, so Nick, Nick's sitting right next to me at Explore, and he's like, that's, that's it. That is his real name. It's not his, okay. And, um, and he, he's, he was talking about being, being a fitness influencer. He's like, it just started with a fitness influencer thing. And he's like, you know, I'm biracial. I work out all the time. I feel really positive. I want to do this thing. It's going to be great. And, he, and his wife is going to medical school, right? And so I was like, hey, I know this couple that's about your age that's moving back to Madison who she went to medical school and studied in Florida like your wife is. And I thought, I need to introduce you to Nikolai and his wife. And he's like, that would be great, right? And then I was like, oh, you're doing the influencing. Hey, there's this guy who gets up at 3 a.m. every morning and works out for three hours, Santino. I, you would really love to meet Santino because he's a positive dude and like, you would like him, right? And so like, I was thinking like, who are people? And here's the thing, I'm not thinking the usual suspects. Like when I first got here, one of the most involved families at High Point Church is the Flatmeyers. 
Man, they did everything. They were in everything. They ran the Family Life Connection. They did the thing. And Andy, we were trying to get Andy on the other board, and he's like, I can't do it. I'm doing everything. You know what I mean? And so, and, and they're still involved, but they were like super involved, and we were only like 300 people, you know? And so like every time people would meet a new person, they were like, hey, we should connect. I want the Flatmeyers. And it's like, okay, the Flatmeyers are like a 12-dot Lego, but like there's a point where you max it out. You just can't do it. Like you, you can't. There can't be these like usual suspect people who like people and everyone connects with them, right? Everybody's got to connect with somebody else. And so I generally do it by like interests. You know, stuff people are interested in, they like to talk about. I try to connect them with stuff that they like to talk about. You know what I mean? And so like there's all, there's, I have like a list in my head of the 24 people at High Point Church that like guns, for example. Because like I'm going to meet a dude who likes guns. I'd be like, hey, you should talk to Matt Raleigh. You know, like, it's like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect them. <laughs> Not that, not that that's true. That was just random that I used that as an example, right? Or like, I mean, I know a bunch of people who really like sewing and scrapbooking and some people who like just, just shopping, some people who like hiking. And I like, I track these in my head. So like, sometimes I don't even know the person's name. I'm like, there's that blonde girl that comes to first service who likes that thing. And then I go to Nellie. He's like, who's the blonde girl? She's about this tie. Hi. She likes to wear like this kind of thing. And she's like, oh yeah, that's that person. I'm like, Okay, that person has kind of, okay, this other person, let me describe that person. Like, and like in my head, I'm trying to, but that's what happens, because then those people meet, and they become friends, and they go do that thing together, and they really like it. And then something happens in one of their lives that's really difficult, and they call your friend. Because here's the thing, we can be the friendliest church in the world, but any church people go to where they don't make friends, uh, the studies that have looked at this have shown people stay at that church between 12 and 24 months, and they leave. And some of them for nowhere. Okay, sorry, I'm kind of over time. I gotta keep moving here. Um, and then the last thing here is, is like pray for people. Bring God into the connection of hospitality. God wants to receive people. Jesus is the one who said, listen, anybody who comes to me, I won't ever turn them away. Jesus is the most hospitable person in the universe except for inner Trinitarian unity. Do you understand? And so when we talk to people and they share something that's heartbreaking or difficult, bring a third person in their action and say, let's pray right now. And then just keep it simple. Don't try to pray like a bishop or something, you know? And then um, it also gives you a reason and opportunity to follow up later. The next time you see him, say, hey, um, hey, what happened? Can we pray again? Or like what? And see, and that, that shows that you listened last week. You cared. You were looking for him. They matter. Does that make sense? All right. Lastly, let me say, let me say this. With everything God commands... When we do it for the right reason, because we want to give him the carrot, not ourselves the horse, you know what I mean? There is something he does good for us in this life right now. He's always working that way, right? And you see, hospitality, and every spiritual discipline, every calling of obedience goes against the flesh in some way and creates a war in us so that we have to kill the flesh, right? And so in, inside of us, right, we have a great love for our home, our privacy, our leisure, and our stomach. And if you invite somebody into your house and into your privacy to be part of the time you've set aside for your leisure and they put in their stomach some of the stuff you purchased for yours, right? Do you see Jesus is, is moving you away from certain idols that are good things he's given you that you're meant to receive with thanksgiving. But the way you show God you've received them worshipfully with saying thanksgiving is that you're willing and love to share them. And there's very little as good for our hearts as when we're willing to burn to ashes, especially our privacy, which we value so much. You know? But that, is the, that sacrifice is the cost of influence. 
That is what it really means to show solidarity. And it is the currency of the real nature of the divine good of hospitality. And so if you do it, it'll transform your life. No matter what your temperament, what your skills, what your abilities, it will be really for the good of others. It's not that hard. It is a prerequisite for the very nature of Christian maturity. And you will find it to be ultimately, when God realigns your values around it, to be a great joy. Even when you show hospitality to your enemies. That's right. God, um, please help us to be a church that understands your commands about hospitality. The truth you tell about it, its centrality, that it's, it's part of the just straightforward, just telling us what to do stuff. Just look, just be hospitable to each other. And the deepest structures of the gospel itself, that it's at the very heart of everything that you've done in Christ, that it's our deepest calling. It's one of the ways in which we can, in a small way, walk in the sufferings of Christ and experience the joys and glory of loving others and focusing on other people and washing to the disciples' feet and welcoming, welcoming foreigners. We pray that you'd help us to do it beautifully and with ever more relish in Jesus' name. Amen.